0: In touch with technology with tech stuff from howstuffworks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer at How Stuff Works, and I love all things tech. And in my recent episode profile of Alfred Lee Loomis, you haven 't listened to that one. it published last week, so go check that out. I mentioned that Loomis was instrumental in developing a technology called loran l o r a n and today i 'm going to talk about that technology in deeper detail and how it uses mathematics and radio signals to help ships navigate far off the coast, or rather how it used to do that as the system has since been phased out. But more on that later. I do think that Loran is pretty cool, and it does give me a chance to talk about mathematics a little bit. Now, as we'll discuss in this episode, I won't go into incredible detail, mathematically speaking, because it involves things like hyperbolas, which are way easier to talk about with the use of visual aids. However, first, I should give some background on Loran. In the 1940s, there was no such thing as the Global Positioning System, or GPS. You could not turn on a computing device and activate a helpful little app to see where you were on the globe. No one had invented a rocket capable of reaching orbit, let alone put a satellite out in space at that point. Yet, there was a need for reliable navigation systems for ships and, later on, for aircraft. This need was made more urgent when the Second World War began. So. You had different systems that were already in place, but many of them relied upon the elements, things like seeing where the sun was and making measurements using something like a sextant. You had ships even leading up into World War II that were dependent upon these kind of systems. And for commercial ships that didn't have the benefit of military technology, this lasted even longer. And that was not ideal. By 1940, it seemed the question wasn't if the United States was going to be pulled into the Second World War, but rather when. Because of this impending threat, several important people urged President Franklin Roosevelt to form a special scientific council to head research and development projects in science and technology that could be useful during wartime. Among these people were uh, Vannevar Bush, who served as scientific advisor to the president, James Conant. Uh, who was president of Harvard at the time, and Carl Compton, who was president of MIT. Roosevelt approved the plan, and the National Defense Research Council, or NDRC, was born. The Council looked at different technologies for detecting aircraft and ships and decided that microwaves were the most promising lead. Carl Compton reached out to Alfred Lee Loomis to head up a special committee called the Microwave Committee to look into the matter. Loomis and his team determined that microwaves could be ideal for detecting aircraft, but that the U.S. had no technology capable of emitting microwaves in the frequency range they desired and enough power to work properly. Meanwhile, in Great Britain, scientists had developed a magnetron capable of creating powerful microwaves in those frequencies. Great Britain sent a group of scientists to the United States to try and develop a radar system that could take advantage of this technology. Sir Henry Tazard and his team brought over a cavity magnetron, and Loomis invited the UK scientists to meet with the Microwave Committee. The committee convinced Compton to set aside a a space at MIT for research and development with microwaves, and the MIT Radiation Laboratory, or RAD Lab, was born. Now, the reason they chose the name Radiation Laboratory was pretty interesting, It was all a matter of deception, of misdirection. The lab did not want anyone associated with the Axis powers to find out what they were working on. So the Allies could maintain an advantage during the war, especially when it came to navigation and detection of aircraft and other vessels. So to that end, they chose the name Radiation Laboratory for a somewhat paradoxical reason, or at least in, in retrospect, it seems paradoxical it made it sound as though the lab was investigating nuclear science, as in things like nuclear power and potentially a nuclear bomb. Now, at the time, the prevailing feeling was that nuclear science was such a young discipline that it would take too long to make any advances in the field that could possibly have an effect during the war. And so they chose to disguise their efforts to advance radar technology by claiming to be a nuclear science lab, which I think is pretty wild, especially when you consider that the actual end of World War II would be in large part due to the development of nuclear weapons. The lab made significant contributions to science and technology with numerous practical applications. Among them was the Long-Range Navigation System, or LORAN, Now, the story of Loran really gets going on October 1st, 1940, when the Army Signal Technical Committee met to create requirements for what it called a Precision Navigational Equipment for Guiding Airplanes. The committee was asking for a means to provide navigational assistance from a distance of 500 miles, a flight ceiling of 35,000 feet, and an accuracy of within 1,000 feet at 200 miles out. In other words, a plane's navigator should be able to determine the plane's position within 1,000 feet of its actual position while still 200 miles out from the radio transmitters that are beaming signals to the plane. Alfred Lee Loomis had a proposal to meet these requirements. He thought that this would originally be used for ships, not for aircraft, because it would require building special receivers, and at the time, there wasn't really a practical way of building a receiver small enough to fit on an aircraft, which already had a pretty strict limit on how much weight and how much space was available in them. Loomis had a clever idea that involved pairs of radio transmitting stations sending out synchronized signals. A receiver aboard a ship would pick up these signals, and by measuring the delay between the two signals, you could figure out your basic distance from the two transmitters. With a second pair of transmitters or a third transmitting tower, you could figure out your actual position. And it all had to do with the formulas for hyperbolas, which is why Loran is also known as a hyperbolic navigation system. Now, I know all the mathematicians out there already have a firm grasp of what a hyperbola is, but for some of us, We might need some instruction or a refresher. It's been more than 20 years since I took a mathematics course, and I needed a little reminder for myself, so here we go. A hyperbola is a symmetrical open curve that represents the set of points in a plane whose distances to two fixed points, called foci in that same plane, have a constant difference. So by a symmetrical open curve, we mean you have two curved lines called branches or connected components. They are symmetrical, so they are mirror images of each other, with the open side of the curves facing outward from each other. They look kind of like infinite bows. As the arms extend out from the center of the hyperbola, which is called the the vertex, the vertices of the hyperbola, they become less curved. So the further out the lines go, the more straight they appear. The two fixed points, or foci, are each on the inside of one of those curves or branches. Now remember, the branches represent a set of points. If you were to select any of those points along one of the curves, you could measure the distance between that point and the two foci. The point will be closer to its own focus than the focus of the other curve. And you subtract one distance from the other, And you take the absolute value, meaning you make it a positive value. So if it would have been negative, you change it to a positive. You will then find the constant for that hyperbola. If you were to pick any other point on that same curve and repeat this process where you measure the distance between that point and the foci and its foci and that point and the foci of the other curve and then subtract the two, you would still arrive at that same value, assuming you take the absolute value. The foci are in a position relative to the curves so that the difference between the distance of any point on the curves and the foci will always be the same. The curves thus represent a selection of possible locations from the perspective of the foci. Now, that's the secret behind Loran. But how? Well, I'll tell you. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Okay, so imagine you've got a coastline. And along this coastline, you have transmitting towers that are paired together so that they send out a pulse of signals in perfect synchronization. If you were on a boat out at sea, equidistant from the two towers, you would receive both sets of signals at exactly the same time. But let's say you're a little closer to Tower A than you are from Tower B. What happens then? Well, Tower A and Tower B send out their signals at exactly the same time. It is synchronized. So you would receive Tower A's signals a little bit earlier than you would receive Tower B's signals. That's because the signals from Tower B have to travel further than the signals from Tower A, and the signals are traveling at a constant rate of speed. So what speed is that? Well, it's the speed of light, because... Radio waves are electromagnetic radiation, as is light. Now, in our atmosphere, because light does travel at different speeds through different media, in in the vacuum of space, it's one speed. But in our atmosphere, light travels at 299,792 kilometers per second. I'm really going to focus on kilometers for this. It makes it easier in the long run. So it's not like there would be a long delay between the two incoming signals. I mean, at that speed... Unless you are really far away, you wouldn't be able to have a massive delay between the two. And if you're really far away, you wouldn't be able to pick up the signals in the first place. So uh, we're talking about a delay that's measurable in microseconds. But with a Loran receiver, that's long enough to do some serious calculations. Now, the two towers that are transmitting represent the foci of a hyperbola. So you're on this boat. And your receiver picks up that you're getting the signals from Tower A, let's say about 200 microseconds before you get the signals from Tower B. So you are closer to Tower A by a factor of 200 microseconds. You also happen to know how far apart Tower A and Tower B are, Because that's part of the whole system. You have to know the location of the transmitting towers and their distance relative to each other. Otherwise, you don't have enough information to make any important determinations. And that information is freely available to anyone who's part of the Loran system. So you know the physical distance that separates these two foci from each other along the coast. Using those pieces of information, you can actually plot the hyperbola curves. So let's say the two towers are 400 kilometers apart. The speed of the radio waves is 0.299792 kilometers per microsecond. And the difference between the two sets of pulses was 200 microseconds. We can calculate the constant of this hyperbola by using the equation distance equals rate times time. The rate is the rate of the radio waves. That's 0.299792 kilometers per microsecond. And the amount of time that passes is 200 microseconds. That gives us 59.9584 kilometers. So let's just round it up. We're going to call it 60 kilometers. That's your constant. Any point along the hyperbola will have a difference in distances from the two foci of of about 60 kilometers. Now, that still doesn't tell you where you are in relation to anything else. It just tells you the relationship between the difference in distances between the two transmitters. However, knowing the constant gives you enough information to suss out the rest of the equation for the hyperbola. The equation for an east-west hyperbola, so if you were to plot this on the old x-y axis, you know, a good old grid, then this would be the ones that would face left and right. A north-south hyperbola would face up and down along the y axis, as opposed to left and right along the x axis. So when you plot an east-west hyperbola on an x-y axis, the equation for a hyperbola is x squared divided by a squared minus y squared divided by b squared equals one. That's your, your, uh, hyperbola equation. Now, if this were an up-down, a north-south hyperbola, you would actually have y squared over a squared minus x squared over b squared equals one. Just a little bit of mathematics for you. The a, by the way, represents the vertices. The, uh, that would be the, the center of the hyperbola, that, that point where it has the curve where it curves around the very center of that is the the uh, of both of those curves are the vertices and the b represents the covertices describing that is a little more tricky without visual aids so just go with me on this if you want to really understand what this is uh, there's a video i highly recommend i found it extremely useful the video that you can find is on YouTube. Uh, I have no connection to the person who makes this video or the company that makes this video. I just found it very useful. The title of the video is Applying Hyperbolas, Navigation, and it's by Think Well Vids. And you can see this applied specifically for the purposes of navigation. They even use an example very similar to what I'm talking about, although he uses miles rather than kilometers. Uh, if you check that out you'll be able to see this in action and it'll be much easier for you to visualize since I'm working with, just from an audio format here the point being that once you figure out the equation for the hyperbola you can plot out all those points on a map that have this this constant this di- constant difference of of distances between the two foci so you get that curved line that represents all of those physical points on the map. Uh, We call this the Loran line of position. By itself, that information isn't that useful because you don't know exactly where along that line your position is. You just know that it has to be one of those points based on the math. You could be anywhere along that curve. Well, if you're on a boat, you would presumably be anywhere out over the ocean because if the curve extends out over the land, you probably aren't there if you're in a boat. If you are there, then you don't really need to worry about your position so much, because chances are it's not really changing. Boats don't move well on land. What you need now is either a third tower that's pulsing the same synchronized signal, or, as the original design of Loran intended, a second pair of transmitting towers. So with a third tower... Let's remember our first two towers were towers A and B. Uh, this would be tower C. You would run the same calculations with regard to the ship and tower A. That will produce a second hyperbola, one in which the curve of that second hyperbola will intersect with the curve from the first hyperbola. If you were using a second pair of towers, we'll call these towers D and E, you would repeat the process you did for towers A and B. Measuring the difference in time it takes Tower D's signal to get to you compared to Tower E's signal, that would let you plot out a second hyperbola, and you would still see a second set of points representing your possible location. More importantly, they would intersect with your first set of points, and it's at that intersection where the two lines cross that your location would have to be. That's the only place your ship could be, because the mathematics would tell you that you have to exist along both of these curved lines simultaneously, and they only intersect at one point. That point is your location. So by using a Loran receiver and taking in transmissions from different towers and applying a little math, you can figure out exactly where you are out in the ocean, even if land isn't in sight and the sky is overcast. By sending out these pulses with identifiers, you'll know where you are in relation to where you're headed and can make course corrections and take the measures to pilot your ship safely toward its destination. This is particularly useful during wartime when you might have to worry about enemy ships patrolling certain areas of the seas and being able to navigate around them. Now, the theory behind Loran was solid. The math works. The trick, then, was to make it a practical technology. Knowing that the theory was sound was one thing, but to put it into practice, to actually build stuff that could use it, That was another, and that presented a bit of a challenge. If the committee could find a way to synchronize transmissions from radio towers hundreds of miles apart, the scheme would work. But that synchronization was absolutely critical, because without it, the difference in time between the two signals would be meaningless. The receiver would have no way of knowing the relationship between time and distance if the two sets of signals weren't sent out at exactly the same time. The team requested about $400,000 worth of equipment on December, uh, well, in December of 1940 in order to carry out an experimental run to determine if the mathematically attractive solution was actually feasible in the real world. And if we adjust that $400,000 for inflation, that would be about $7.2 million worth of stuff in today's money. The team looked for suitable spots to construct the transmission towers, and at first they they considered some mountain peaks along the coast, but then they found two former Coast Guard lifeboat stations that had fallen into disuse. One was outside Montauk Point, Long Island, and the other off of Fenwick Island, Delaware. The two locations were 209 nautical miles apart from one another, and they weren't too far from the headquarters for the project, which was in the Bell Telephone Laboratories in New York. The earliest tests concentrated not on synchronization, which was an area that Alfred Lee Loomis was particularly intrigued by as he had a fascination with timekeeping, but rather in how far they could broadcast the radio signals. They tried several different wavelengths to see which ones could perform best under different situations. And they discovered that longer wavelength radio waves seemed to travel further at night and shorter ones seemed to travel further during daylight hours. And that kind of suggested to them that maybe they should compromise and go with a medium wavelength signal that would perform the best under most circumstances. They also did not test it with a ship at sea at first. Rather, they created a Loran receiver and they mounted it aboard a humble station wagon that traveled as far away as Springfield, Missouri. Now, I have to say more about the development of Loran in just a second. But first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. As work continued on the Loran project, the group began to work on a way to synchronize signals, because without synchronization, these equations are not going to create an accurate hyperbola. The solution was called a two-trace indicator technique. A trace is a type of log or record of events. A common reference time acts as the anchor point for the traces, which can then be analyzed against each other to determine how close to synchronicity the two transmitters are and adjustments can be made. Eventually, they created a timekeeping algorithm that was accurate enough that were it in a wristwatch, you could go for a full decade without losing a minute on it. By January 1942... The the project was able to create a system that had an average error in the line of position of about two and a half miles or around four kilometers, which sounds like an awful lot. But when you're thinking about the distances that these uh, various craft were traveling, it was actually pretty good. The remaining challenge was one that was solved relatively easily. The problem was that receivers would pick up two signals of different amplitudes, meaning different strength of signal, and the difference in amplitudes made it more difficult to measure the time difference between the signals accurately. So to fix this, the team built in differential gain control to help boost a low signal or dampen a powerful one so that the calculations could be made more easily. Successful tests with ships and blimps convinced the U.S. Army and Navy to fund the construction of transmission stations for a larger test in the Northwest Atlantic in 1942. Work continued in America, Canada, and Greenland to build out transmission stations. The project was a success, and work soon extended to other parts of the coast as well as over in the UK. The application proved to be a sound one. Advancements in receiver technology allowed aircraft to use the same system a little bit later, which became incredibly useful during the war. Planes and ships could meet at rendezvous points that previously had been would have been impossible to achieve. Uh, They were able to pair together different navigation systems. Some of them were more accurate at closer ranges, and Loran was more accurate at long range, so using the two together was really helpful. By the end of 1945, more than 3,000 naval ships and 30,000 planes had Loran technology aboard. After the war, the system was recognized as being so useful as to be instrumental in the shipping industry moving forward, and the U.S. Coast Guard even produced a short film to convince shipping companies to adopt Loran technologies for the purposes of navigation. Loran stations were manned by military personnel, primarily the Coast Guard. Now, according to the Coast Guard blog site, an assignment to a Loran station could be pretty lonesome. The crews tended to range in size between 8 and 25 people, and typically the person put in charge was a junior officer who had maybe served a tour of duty aboard a ship and now was put in charge of an office, and frequently this would be the highest military officer rank in the area, not meaning that the rank was particularly high, but rather that these Stations were in pretty remote spaces, sometimes so much so that the only communication you had with the outside world was through radio and frequently you had to have all your supplies shipped to you on a regular basis. Uh, in fact, the blog post said that for a lot of these people, the day when a shipment came in would be a really big day if you were on, if you were posted to one of these places because you would actually get to speak to people who weren't on your crew and that could be A real relief. Just imagine spending time with up to 7 to 24 other people, and those are the only people you ever get to see ever. On top of that, the junior officer sometimes had to act as a representative of the U.S. military And uh, to people who were native to the areas that they were stationed in. So in some cases, it wasn't so remote that you didn't have other people around you. But it was in a territory that did not belong to the United States. And there you are as an official of the U.S. military. And you have to, you know, serve as a representative of your country. So that put a lot of extra pressure on you. It was pretty interesting. Now, on a blog post for the Coast Guard, Lieutenant Connie Bresch said that a typical description of a tour of duty at a Loran station would be, quote, hours of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer panic, end quote. Now, the staff's primary function was to make sure that the transmitters were working properly. That required standing watches in which staff would literally remain in the room Monitoring the equipment for the transmitter to verify that everything was still working as planned. It wasn't until a more advanced of Loran called Loran C automated uh, enough of the functions to remove that necessity. And uh, Loran C would not see wide deployment in the, uh, in the consumer world, especially until the 1970s. Now the original Loran system was later called Loran A. Loran B was the designation of a different version of Loran, which used the phase of the signals as the means of measuring time differences between the two received signals, rather than comparing the actual timing of the pulse envelopes themselves. So in other words, the original version of Loran was all about when did this set of signals get to you? When did this pulse arrive to your receiver? And how does that compare to when this second pulse arrived to your receiver? It was just based upon that, the order of operations of when a pulse of signals arrived to you. LORAN-B was more about the phase of the signals and using that to determine the time difference, as opposed to just this signal got to me first. And that actually improved the accuracy of LORAN in many ways. The United States uh, Air Force was experimenting with a variation of Uh, LORAN-C. LORAN-C, which also followed the approach that Lauren B was attempting to make. Uh, Lauren B never really got to see much use. It was kind of phased out pretty quickly, and Lauren C took its place. Uh, Lauren C used that same approach, and then there was a variation of Lauren C from the United States Air Force called Lauren D that was used as a means to create guidance systems for the military. It actually saw some limited use in the Vietnam War, and Motorola introduced a navigational system that was not directly related to the other Loran systems, but because it used a pulse chain technology, it ended up getting the nickname Loran F, though again, it wasn't really connected to the other uh, versions of Loran. While Loran C was superior to Loran A, it was also more expensive to implement. It was more expensive to buy the re- the receivers and install them on your equipment, so not everyone immediately switched over to Loran C. Some people said, well, Loran A works just fine, and the system is still in place. Both systems are working together, uh, or at least concurrently, so I don't have to switch over. The companies that did make the switch would frequently offload their old Loran A equipment, making Loran A readily available and relatively inexpensive, which extended its useful life quite a bit. The Coast Guard eventually chose to discontinue Loran A in all but a few spots in the world in the late 1970s and early 1980s, kind of forcing a switch over to Loran C. And that was largely from an administrative standpoint. You wanted to have something that was more automated, and you didn't have to dedicate as much staff to actually manning these stations. A different technology eventually began to displace LORAN altogether, and that was the Global Positioning System, or GPS. Through the use of satellites in orbit, it became possible to determine one's position on the planet with pretty good accuracy. But until the year 2000, the GPS approach had a built-in limitation designed to keep accurate information out of the hands of people who might use it to harm the United States. And this was called Selective Availability. And it would introduce time-varying errors on purpose to reduce the accuracy of signals to about 100 meters if you were using civilian GPS. If you had military GPS, this selective availability was not active. The whole selective availability purpose was to prevent bad actors from being able to use GPS to hone in on sensitive U.S. sites like military bases. And in 2000, President Bill Clinton signed an agreement that turned off selective availability and reduced the introduced errors to zero, meaning that you no longer had any purposeful time-varying errors inserted into the GPS signals, giving citizens the opportunity to receive much more accurate GPS readings and making stuff like real-time mapping apps possible. Because imagine using a real-time mapping app, and it's still got the selective availability, uh, turned on. And so you know that sometime within a hundred meters you need to turn right. But you aren't exactly sure where. It might be a hundred meters ahead of you. It might be a hundred meters behind you. It might be somewhere within that range. And you don't know if you've passed the street already or not. Obviously, That would limit the usefulness of GPS, but because we got rid of selective availability in 2000, we now can use apps that rely on GPS that are far more accurate to just a couple of meters. GPS became ubiquitous rapidly, and Loran was phased out over time. But there has been talk of developing a new Loran system called eLoran, or Enhanced Loran, that version would allow for a positional system accurate to within eight meters, making it a potential backup should GPS fail or should people try to block or jam GPS signals. There's been reported GPS interference over the Black Sea, and there's been reported GPS blocking uh, technologies around North Korea. So this would be a way of getting around that. You could not block it in the same way that you would with GPS signals. The UK went so far as to allocate resources to building out such a system, though the government would eventually reverse that decision in 2015 after France and Norway ended their Loran transmissions. And that's the story of Loran, the really important technology overseen by the Microwave Committee and then the Radiation Laboratory at MIT, which in turn was reporting to Alfred Lee Loomis, the guy I talked about last week, And I thought it was pretty fascinating. I love watching the videos of how this technology worked and the actual way of plotting where you were on the map. It was a pretty fascinating use of mathematics and technology. So I highly recommend you go check out some of those videos so that you can get a visualization on what I've been chatting about. It's pretty fascinating stuff. If any of you have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, maybe it's a technology, maybe it's a company, maybe it's a person in tech I shouldn't talk about, you should send me those suggestions. Likewise, if you think of someone I should interview or have on as a guest... Let me know. Send me an email. The address is techstuffathowstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle of both of those is techstuffhsw. You can follow me on Instagram. Just look for the Tech Stuff uh, account over there and you can check that out as well. And remember, I broadcast live on Wednesdays and Fridays at twitch.tv slash techstuff. You can watch me record these shows live and in person. There's a chat room you can join in on and I would love to see you in there and I will talk 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 to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.